it's been a little while, but we last left off at verse 10. So we're going to pick up with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. I want to speak to you this morning on the, uh, the title of the sermon is, Our Identity is in Jesus. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11. Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh, or brought close, by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, or of two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were close, and that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the spirits. Very early on, if you were raised in Sunday school, where we teach children to sing the song, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black or white, they're precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That song is not inherently about the children. It is about the love of Jesus. What a beautiful truth that without distinction of class or color, the love of Jesus extends to all people. And we embrace that truth as children because as children, we are the little children of the world that we want the love of Jesus. But then those children grow up. And all too soon, we find that the distinctions of class and color and other things become sort of dominant in our lives. We start to think, well, I'm, I'm red or I'm, I'm white, I'm black. And that becomes the focus. We engage in all sorts of tribalism. I'm part of this group. And we forget that our true identity is found in Jesus and his love. This is a major problem. 
We noted back when we began this letter to Ephesus that Paul doesn't seem to be writing this letter because there was a a specific problem unique to Ephesus. This section might be as close as we come to getting a specific problem being addressed, but this problem is not unique to Ephesus. I want you to just picture the, the, the church at Ephesus for a moment. I remember, it is made up of a variety of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. Paul notes that in verse 11. But the reality is there is more than just that. Among the Jews, there were several groups. There were the traditional law-keeping Jews. Then there were the the Hellenists, the Greek-cultured Jews. There were Jews who easily embraced Gentile believers, and there were other Jews who thought Gentiles had to become proselytes to Judaism in order to be saved. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, after all. And then, on the other hand, there were Gentiles. And among that, there were subgroups. There were Roman citizens and there were non-citizens. Citizenship was a major dividing point at this uh, time. Culturally, those who descended from a Greek background thought themselves superior to all others. They literally called everyone who was not from a Greek background, they used the term barbarians for those people. So there were Jews and there were subsets of Jews. There were Gentiles and there were subsets of Gentiles. Not to mention, there would have been more than a couple of skin tones present in the assembly. Fixating on those distinctions distracted from their true identity, which was found in Jesus Christ. But they were still doing it. In verse 11, the word Gentiles is the Greek word Ethnos, it's where we get our term ethnic from. So there were nations, there were those ethnos, those those ethnicities. There were those people in the mind of the Jews. You not only to see division by the use of that term, but also by the use of other labels. Paul writes, look at how he, he says in verse 11, That you know those Jews called you the uncircumcised. Although in reality, we understand biblically that they would actually add the word dogs to that. You uncircumcised dogs. Meanwhile, the Gentiles also had their labels calling the Jews the circumcised, right? Oh, you mutilators. They've all got their labels for each other. Yet for all that in verse 11, Paul also gives a hint. Those distinctions were really not substantial. Twice he uses the term in the flesh, right? You are Gentiles, you are ethnos, in the flesh. Meanwhile, the Jews are the circumcision, in the flesh. These distinctions, Paul says, let's be clear about it, these distinctions are only skin deep. Now remember in the context, Paul has just clearly written about the nature of salvation. It is by grace alone. Not anything about who you are, not anything about what you've done. Even faith is a gift that is given to you and you are called to do good works, right? Verse 10, if you remember verse 10, we are his workmanship. And we dug into that word. You are his work of art. You're his. 
And identifying yourself or other Christians as primarily part of some subgroup, something less than, some identity other than simply Christ, is essentially to vandalize the work that he has created. So starting in verse 11, through the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to argue about the importance of our unity in Christ. Actually, he's going to argue that we find our true identity in Jesus Christ. Most likely the majority of the church members at Ephesus were Gentiles because Paul addresses the issue in these verses by speaking to them specifically. But it's a lesson, we'll see in a moment, it's a lesson for everyone. In verses 11 and 12, he says, here's what we all were. In verses 13 through 18, he says, here's what Christ has done. And verses 19 through 22, here's what Christ has made us. The main thought in this text is that all those whom the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled to God, he has also reconciled to one another, uniting them in assemblies to be identified with him alone. So let's look at what we all were. Verses 11 and 12. Wherefore, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All those skin-deep distinctions in verse 11, those are in the past. Whether it is being called an uncircumcised dog or Gentiles calling Jews the circumcised mutilators, all of it is skin-deep. It is distinction about things that Paul says they are in the flesh. They are made with hands. But here's the sad reality of the name-calling that happens due to class or color distinctions. None of it ever labels the real problem. There is so much time and energy spent on name calling and forming up into our own little tribes that the real problem is ignored. What's the real problem? It's not something skin deep. He's addressing it in verse 12. Look, he says, we were without Christ. More than just without him, the words there means literally separated from him. Remember, the word Christ in the New Testament is essentially the the same word as Messiah in the Old Testament. These Gentiles were in the past separated from the Messiah because the promise of the Messiah was given to the nation of Israel. That promise, trusting that promise was the basis by which the Jews in the Old Testament were saved. And it's the basis for Gentiles to be saved too. But Paul says, look, you were, you were separated from that promise. We were not just without Christ, but also, he says, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were not part of the citizenship of Israel, the people of God. And as a result of being outsiders, he says, you were strangers from the covenants of promise. Those covenants of promise 
we were not seen as part of God's covenant people. Well, let's make sure we understand and grasp what it is that Paul means by this. Israel, the covenant people of God, were called by God as a nation to be lifted up as an example of what it is to live in relationship with him. God had told the nation of Israel, you alone have I chosen of all the families of the earth. But he was also clear the purpose of it when he talked to Abraham and he told Abraham, through you will all the families of the earth be blessed. The nation of Israel was chosen by God to be essentially a a lighthouse showing the way to God, calling nations to be reconciled with him. But they failed. And they adopted pride and name-calling instead. And so Gentiles, Paul goes on to say, had no hope and were without God in the world. They were hopeless and godless. What better way to explain what it means to be without Jesus? It is to be cut off, to have no citizenship among God's people, no knowledge of God himself, and hopeless in regard to our eternal future. Paul says, this is what you were. And what is going to intercede to change that? I mean, did God intend to bless the Gentiles? Yes. Through Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, through the example and testimony of the Jews, but, but cut off as they were, Gentiles were never going to hear about that. The only source of hope for the Gentiles is that if God would bypass the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel, come himself and reconcile us by bringing us hope hope directly. And that's what Jesus has done. He came as a descendant of Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. He went to the cross. He, He died. He was buried. He rose again. And after rising again, he told his disciples, now you go and you preach the good news to every creature. You go to to all nations. So yes, in the past, right, in verse 11, in times past, that's what we were, but that is, Paul says, past. Those distinctions do not define our identity anymore. Our identity is found in Jesus and what Jesus has done. And so Paul moves on from what we all were to talk about what Christ has done. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby." And came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. It says in verse 13, you who were sometimes far off are made close. 
why? I mean, if we used, used to be detached from hope and, and separated from God, right? Hopeless and godless. What's made the difference? Well, Paul's clear in verses 13 through 18 what's made the difference. It is only Jesus. Look at those verses. Verse 13, the beginning. Now, in Christ Jesus, at the end of that verse, by the blood of Christ. In verse 15, in his flesh, that is in his body. Verse 16, it's by the cross. Verse 18, through him, we have access. This is all about Christ and what he has done. Now, while Paul's writing as if to a Gentile-only audience, we know that there were Jews in the church at Ephesus as well. And we can see Paul addressing them too, just not quite as directly. He, I want you to note, he does this in two ways. First, while he identified Jews and Gentiles in verses 11 and 12, now in verses 13 through 18, he repeatedly uses this word both. You see that in verse 14. He has made both one. In verse 16, he, can re- he might reconcile both to God. Verse 18, through him we both have access. In verse 15, he even says that Christ has made of two one new man. That is, he has brought both together into one. In verse 17, the good news of peace, peace is preached to you who were far off and to them that were close. So that's the first way that Paul addresses the Jews in the church, by using that term both and and saying essentially that the Lord Jesus has come to reconcile both groups and to bring them into unity with one another. The second way he addresses the Jews is a little bit more indirectly. He, he talks about something that only makes sense in a, a Jewish context. In verse 14, he says Jesus has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. To understand what Paul's saying there, I want you to just picture a quick visual tour of the city of Jerusalem and the temple as it existed in Jesus and Paul's day. Right? Jerusalem is built on the top of Mount Zion and the temple is at the very peak of that mountain like a sparkling jewel up there. You could have seen the temple compound from far off as you traveled this arched roadway that led up to the steps of the temple. The outer walls of the temple were about 10 stories high outer walls surrounding it, if you can picture this, constructed with such huge mason stonework that archaeologists are still sort of stumped at how the, the stones for the walls were moved up the mountain. But inside those walls, they had separated, they surrounded this massive courtyard, big enough to fit about 30 football fields inside. And so you would interrupt to that, You would go through these ornate doors that open into that picturesque courtyard, right? All around that's surrounded by high columns that are holding up like these raised walkways around the edge of the walls, creating a colonnade or portico around the entire compound. But all of that is just the outer courtyard. It's not the temple itself. It's just decoration. The actual place to worship God is still 
further inside. So this, there's this elaborate structure that's covered in gold and decorated with detailed tapestries. And as you approach in the middle of all this visual splendor, you, you come near to an, an inner courtyard. It's separated from that outer courtyard, right? The outer courtyard, 10-story high walls around it. You get inside that to the smaller inner courtyard, and it's separated from the outer courtyard by a, a, a little half wall, a little wall that's about four foot high. It's ornate. It's engraved with marble. It's engraved marble. You can, you can see over that little dividing wall, right? There's nothing that's stopping your view. But in the middle of all that impressive beauty, your eyes are drawn to what is a repulsive sign, just a, an ugly message. At frequent intervals around that little half wall of the inner courtyard, there is a sign that is in several languages. And it says this, No one of another nation may enter within the partition and enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death that ensues. You are keenly aware that sign's there for you. And it uses far more words than are necessary. It could have simply said, Jews only, no Gentiles allowed. Or for our society, what if it said whites only, no blacks allowed? This is the middle wall of partition that Paul is writing about when he says Jesus has broken down the middle wall of partition that, that separates us. But now think about this. That wall was actually still there, right? I mean, if you were part of the church at Ephesus who first heard this letter from Paul read aloud in the assembly, wouldn't you have been able to go to Jerusalem and still see that wall? Wasn't it still there? Yes, but Paul's saying, look, it, it, it's not for you. Christ has taken the dividing wall that separates these subgroups of people outside of him and demolished it, uniting them together in him. There is this idea today that Jesus has come in order to achieve reconciliation between all the people of the world. Listen, I would encourage you to put that idea out of your mind. Jesus does not, nor did he intend to, unite all people together. The purpose of the work of Jesus is to unite all kinds of people to God. That's who he unites us with. He came so that in verse 16, he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross. Or in verse 17, through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Who is it that Jesus is reconciling us with? He will, he's come to reconcile us with God. Now this does reconcile individuals together. It breaks down that dividing barrier. At the end of verse 16, he is slain. Paul says literally, he has, he has killed the enmity that exists between these people by his work. But the reconciliation of one another our reconciliation to each other 
is achieved only by being reconciled first to God by the work of Jesus. Here's how that works. When Jesus, in verse 16, had slain, he'd killed, right? He'd executed the the enmity, the animosity between us and God. The product of that was also, in verse 15, abolishing the enmity and animosity between the people of God. When Jesus reconciles you to God the Father, you become a born-again child of God. And as a child of God, you come and you sit at his table, and as you sit there, you find yourself seated with barbarians and Gentiles and Jews and slaves and free and red and yellow and black and white. You do not find when you come to God that God is colorblind. But you find that his purpose is glorifying himself through Christ as all those diverse people start to sing, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and language and people and nation. Paul's point in this text is he declares the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His point is not to say Jesus has died to bring us all together. It is to say that Jesus has died to bring us to God and there we find ourselves all together. And it's important that we make that distinction. The key to unity is not uniformity. It's not sitting yourself down by people who look like you and dress like you and talk like you. The key to unity is when diverse people find their truest identity in Jesus Christ. When you do that, you'll have unity with other people who find their identity in Jesus Christ. It won't be Well, I'm an American Christian, I'm a white Christian, I'm a black Christian, I'm a Jewish Christian. While those distinctions exist, none of those distinctions ultimately ultimately matter. When you attach those labels to your Christianity, you are not adding to Christ, you are detracting from him. This is the message of the New Testament. Not to deny that those groups exist, but to to deny that those groups matter once you find that they exist in Christ. And so Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians 3.11, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. That is what we need to do. We need to see what Christ has done and find our identity in him. And so we've seen, here's what we all were and what Christ has done. Now look at what Christ has made us, starting at verse 19. In this final section, the apostle, I want you to note as we read it, he gives three illustrations for the unity that results from finding your identity in Jesus Christ. He says you have citizenship, you have family, and you are building blocks. Listen, 
Verse 19, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So these three illustrations, he says, you, are, you, are, you have citizenship. You're not strangers and foreigners anymore. That's part of what you were, but that's not what you are because of what Christ has done. This is Paul speaking again directly to the Gentiles in the church. But it's a message for the Jewish believers too, right? That Gentile guy is sitting next to you. He's not a stranger. He's not a foreigner. He is a fellow citizen. He has every right of citizenship of the kingdom of God that you have. I mentioned earlier, citizenship was a, a huge issue in the first century Roman Empire. Everyone in the the empire was a resident, but not everyone had the right of citizenship. We find out in scripture that Paul was one of the few Jewish men who possessed Roman citizenship. The first time that came to light is in Acts 16 at, at the city of Philippi. That city was established as a a Roman colony and many former citizen soldiers were stationed there. Actually, the the Philippian jailer probably was a former soldier. They assumed that Paul was, you know, he's, he's just a Jew. But when he was unlawfully beaten and imprisoned, they were in great fear after he asserted his citizenship and the rights that he had as a citizen. Later on, as he writes to the Christians in the church in that city who were, you know, proud, they they loved their standing as citizens of Rome, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews describes it as we're, we're strangers in this world, we're foreigners, we're We're waiting for the coming kingdom to which our citizenship, our primary allegiance belongs. This is what Christ has done. He's made us fellow citizens of his kingdom. At the end of verse 19, Paul gives a second illustration of what Christ has made us. He says we're we're family. He says we're, we're members of the household of God. That's family. Right? We're family because we have the same father. We're family because we have the same perfect and loving older brother. The awkwardness that some people feel toward addressing each other in, in Christ as brothers or sisters. Listen, that's just an expression of this reality. Christ has, has made us family. Paul intentionally uses the term household here instead of house. Tells us our connection isn't about a building we visit, but it's about a family to which we belong. Listen, my my household is here this morning, even though our house is over there somewhere, right? 
Every Wednesday night and twice Sunday, we have a little family reunion in this building. And Listen, you need to be here. It's an encouragement when you're here. It's a discouragement when you're not here. It's an expression of your heart toward your family and, and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ who has made you family. The third illustration he gives is the, the most extensive. Right? You're, you are building blocks, he says. Verses 20 through 22, you're built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows up as a holy temple unto the Lord in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. I don't know the last time some of you put Legos together. But when you get a box of Legos from the store nowadays, most often it is some sort of pre-planned design, right? Here's a Lego schoolhouse or a Lego doctor's office. Of course, I have all girls, so I helped assemble the Lego hair salon. You start by pulling out the platform, right? The, the, the big flat rectangular piece and you start assembling all the building blocks on that in the right places because it's what holds everything together. Look, the Lord Jesus is the, the cornerstone. He is the single vital footing which makes the building possible. And on that cornerstone that, uh, of the Lord Jesus, built on the, the foundation of his church. It begins with the apostles and the prophets. And on top of that, Paul says, every member of the Lord's church is a building block designed to be, in verse 22, fitly framed together. For a holy temple is a dwelling place for our Lord. Or as the apostle Peter says, you are, you are living stones built up into a spiritual house. The Lord's church is made up of living blocks fit together on the foundation of Jesus. Not all those blocks are the same, nor would they fit together if they were all the same. Let me illustrate it this way. Right now, you are inside of a brick building, right? When you pull up in the morning and you you park in the parking lot over there and you look over this direction, what do you see? Do you look over and you see bricks or do you look over and you see a building? In reality, it's not a trick question. The truth is you see both. You see bricks that make up the building. I'm sure all of you appreciate the building this morning, but can any of you tell me you've got a favorite brick out there? Have you noticed that they're not all identical? They're, they're slightly different colors, and if you look closely, you'll see some of them are different shapes, but they fit together. And none of us look at this structure and say, hey, look at those bricks. We look at it and they say, well, there's a church building. That has become their identity together. This is what we're called to in Jesus Christ. The church is not literally a building. It is an assembly of multi 
multifaceted, diverse individuals who find their identity together in Jesus Christ. This should obliterate the wicked notions of distinctions that people make over social class or or skin color. And it should at the same time elevate our thoughts on the importance and value of the Lord's church and our commitment to it. Or let me ask it this way. If you took a brick away from this building and you sat it down on some vacant lot in some other city a few hundred miles away, would anyone look at that brick and say, oh, look, a church building? Of course not. Nor can you take a member of this church and put them out somewhere separated from it and still pretend that they're part of that church. When you have a church member who does not attend, all that does is it gives you a building with a hole in it and a brick that's not serving its purpose. This letter to the church at Ephesus, it probably has the most church-centered teaching of all the New Testament. And Paul is a long way from being done with that. At the end of chapter 3, he's going to argue unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And chapter 4, instead of using the illustration of a building, he uses the illustration of a body, although unsurprisingly, he uses the same terms that all the body parts are fitly framed together. We need a radical readjustment to our thinking. So often we are self-absorbed and spend our time trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to be me? I'm trying to find myself here. Listen, you don't need to find yourself. You need to find Jesus and see your self-identity in him. To find your identity in Christ you have to be a participant in the body of Christ. We don't have to all look alike and all work the same. In fact, it's much better if we don't. But we do have to find our place in Jesus and have our identity in him. That's the point of this text. All those whom the Lord Jesus has reconciled to God, he is also reconciled to one another, uniting them in assemblies to be identified with him alone.